All right, so we have got a ton of things to try to come come through today, but kind of as an opener, I thought I would give you all an opportunity to just kind of share with me what you have seen on the whole at this point about Israel, the nation, about Solomon, the man, um, the, maybe the things that you have been surprised about or the things that you have been impressed by um, in the things that we've looked at thus far in our homework. Does anyone have some insights they want to share? Some of you have run up to me in church and gone, what? <laughs> so I know you have thoughts. <laughs> I am so glad. You know, when, when God spoke, I'm sorry, I speak, I didn't even raise my hand. No, that's fine. Of course not. You don't need to. Go ahead. I mean, I, when God told him what he was going to do, if he'd have been David, he would have gone completely, uh, asked forgiveness, gone into this mm -hmm. Right. He didn't. He started to go after Joab. I mean, that, that was, there was no repentance in him. I mean, he started to fight back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He had just lost contact with what God was all about. Yeah. I mean, I, I just was so depressed. <laughs> Well, I'm hoping that I won't leave you depressed in the end because one of the things that came mentioned at the end was that Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 4, that there's a reason for all these things to be recorded. Does anybody kind of remember the gist of that verse? What is it? Do you remember, Susan? Yes, that, that we might learn them and, and learn by them, learn through them, that in the end we also won't take that same fatal walk. Right. Thinking, you know, a lot of us have had really close relationships with God. You know, we 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 have close relationships, and then we go away, and then oh, we come back, and you know, it you know, it's a, it's a thing mm -hmm. like that. But we just can't ever. We have to remember never to go away. That's right. If God had only recorded the good people like David and although David had some things too that were recorded as well but I'm just saying if he only recorded good events and good people and solid walkers how hard would that be for us then as children following behind yes uh-huh yes Yes. You know, deluded himself, really. Yes. That's right. And yet, he, he said that, and yet there's no indication of repentance of it in him. No. He did, but nah, we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is how God, uh, how God declared him. That's what we know. That's right. Very good, Carrie. 
That was going to be my next question is, you know, since God, you know, for all of us, all of our lives, most of us, have, if we've grown up in the church, we've always heard of the wisdom of Solomon. And we do know that God gave him his wisdom. But now at this point, are you, are you able to identify the kind of wisdom it was? What kind of wisdom did Solomon receive from God? Worldly wisdom. It's not that God gives worldly things as in evil things. These are good gifts from God. But it's the kind of wisdom that allows man to operate in the world. It was the wisdom that's logical. It's the ability even to discern from good and evil in regards to reading a a person's character or to figure out how to figure out what's going on, right? Like he did with those two women. Um, And so... This wisdom that we look at with Solomon, when we go through the scriptures, though, and we see the references to the word wisdom, you have to discern from the text what kind of wisdom it is speaking of, because there are two different kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom which leads to repentance and salvation, and then there's a wisdom that allows you to operate in the world. And um, I think it was Kathleen, I was just saying, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to me when people are so enamored with people who are successful and very smart and they are impressed by what they have and what they do and who they are. And yet, is that the wisdom that we really should be looking for in a person? The real wisdom, what you want, is that quindle and quiet spirit before the Lord. That's right. Yeah. Well, what I saw through the lesson, too, is that it was quite repeated and also emphasized that he continued to uh, be with women that God told him not to. Mm -hmm. And the reason why he told Israel not to yoke themselves with foreigner women was because that that would take their hearts away from God. And that's exactly what happened. Isn't it amazing how... I was trying to calculate how many women would that be in one year. Yeah, I know. New women, (laughs) not the ones he'd already been with, but the new women. I thought, oh, my head just couldn't wrap around it. Yeah. Well, you know where his mind and his heart was, because who has 700 wives? Yes. I mean, really think, try to wrap your I know, around I know. That, that one point alone. I mean, so, and they were all foreigners. It doesn't say anywhere that he married within. No, but it doesn't but, say he doesn't, doesn't but, but you're right. Still, the point is he had too many wives. And those were foreigner wives that served other gods, and he even set up Asher poles and mm-hmm. high places right. and... So it was like that little, uh, that one command that he disobeyed God threw him in an entirely different road. It's interesting. It all started back with 1 Kings chapter 3 when it says, almost in in passing, he married the daughter of of Pharaoh. And then then it says, and he loved the Lord except, and then what was the next thing he did? He worshipped on the high places so we see his demise is is it's so this whole record is so subtle um last week as you saw i took you through all those geographical locations which she she took us into some geography we were just chatting about that this week but more on a minor scale but last week she didn't even really have you all look at that it was the most major point to me about understanding the insights right because by going through all that geography you could see that everything he did strategically in one fashion or another violated his his covenant with God his relationship with God the commandments of God he put people in the wrong priority. He put his, his 
foreign wives, the head of his own people that he was king over. I mean, there were all kinds of things that he did that were totally askew. And in the end, then, what do we see happens to his life, right? He did evil in the he, sight of the Lord. That's right. And, you know, Kara, you brought up, we, don't, we know we ha- he has other writings, but, but exactly where in those writings um, certain things are said about his wisdom. He might have had the wisdom to know that was what he's supposed to do. But here's the final word. At the close of his life, God said of him, what? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that is the final word we have on his life. That's the last statement that's given concerning Solomon. And who is it given to us by? God. So to me, that's the final authority. Even though we can take a lot of things and we can try to draw other things out of it, God makes that final assessment about his life. And so what we're going to do now is try to evaluate all the things that we've, we've seen him do and engage in and then try to draw life lessons for our own lives from what we saw with him. Yes, Celeste. Yeah, we talked about last week, we talked about the king of Tyre a couple of times and how he shouldn't have had this covenant relationship with this king of Tyre, right? Did anybody happen to notice on a map where Tyre is? Oh, good, Martha. Tell us all about this. (laughs) It's north. It's north and it's on the coastline, but within the boundaries of what land? Israel. So what should... Should Solomon and David have done concerning the king of Tyre? They should have conquered him and taken his land. They should have never allowed him to remain. It's very interesting to me that they allowed another king to stay upon their land, although his, his land mass area that he was governing over as a king is very small, and that's all true. But it was not a thorn in their side the entire time. When we did our study in Ezekiel, what did we see in Ezekiel about the king of Tyre? He was still present. You know what's very interesting to me? Another, another point, Celeste, that I picked up on was not only was he supposed to um, be conquered and, and removed from the land, and that, that area, Tyre, should have belonged to Israel, and it would have been as valuable as it was to the king of Tyre, it would have been to King Solomon or King David as well, right? Or Saul before them. But the other thing is, is at the end, remember who came in and conquers uh, Israel? Who was it? The Babylonians, right? At the end, it, when, when, yes, in the, in the book of Ezekiel, God sends Babylon the, of the Chaldeans in to basically um, impose judgment against them for their unfaithfulness, right? Take them into captivity, correct? Well, in all Israel, because Judah had already been at that point in their captivity in Assyria. Right, that's what I'm saying. And so it became all Israel in the end, because they also, they took possession of the whole world. Basically, it was a, Babylon was a, a world kingdom. Right, okay, it, that's a minor point, but he, yes, they came in, but when they came in and took that portion of Israel captive, you know what else they took captive? Tyre. Interesting to me that the final judgment that God brought against Israel, when he, because he had brought the Assyrians in first and taken those ten tribes into captivity at that point, now he's coming in and he's taking the last two into their captivity. Babylon has now become the world-dominant 
power, right? A world kingdom and, and power. And they took them cap- captive. And then what did, what did God do? He, as if he's almost sticking his finger in their eye and saying, I told you guys to take possession of this land. Now I'm bringing in your enemies, and they're not only going to conquer you and remove you from the land, but they're going to remove Tyre, who you should have removed to begin with. Amazing. Yes. I know. I know. That's, well, and that's what we were saying. And then he didn't like them. And he rejected them, right? Because they were inland. And that's what we talked about last week was how, you know, interesting to me was the sovereignty of God in that. Did you not see a sovereign hand? This king, um, Solomon, was going to give ten cities inland from where Tyre is on the map, right there on that border along the water. He was going to give them in the land of Galilee, which laid to the right of the city, those 10 cities in this region called Galilee. And uh, the king of Tyre came in, Hiram, and he looked at them and he said, they're good for nothing. They're of no value to me. Why? Because he's a seaman, and he, and he makes his profit and his wealth off the sea. And so it was too inland. And so for him, remember, uh, by definition, the, the area, he called it Kabul. And it means the words, uh, by definition, is um, shackles or fetters. Because it was going to tie him down. He was going to have to be responsible then for that land to work it, to provide for it, to govern over it. But it wasn't going to really bring any wealth in. There, you know, business people kind of think things through like this. They look at things and going, yeah, I could do that, but that's going to be an expense, not an asset, right? It's not going to bring in money. It's going to expend my money and energy. And so he said he called them cobble, and he rejected them. Thank goodness, because God was protecting them from losing more of their land that they were not taking possession of. Very interesting. Right. Well, I can't say that it was not from God. I think what he was doing was not applying it appropriately. You can have wisdom, which God gives you, because quite honestly, the very breath that you breathe comes from God. Your mind, there's, there's a place in, in Acts that says that God determines the exact time and place in history when you will be b- born, right? That you might seek God and find him, although he's not far from any one of you. Even where you were born in history, the family that you're born into, the parents that you have, everything about your life is from God. But it's what you do with it that matters. And this is where Solomon went wrong. God gave him wisdom. We saw that, right? Mm-hmm. Chapter, chapter 3 of 1 Kings. God gave him wisdom. But then he, and then he also promised him the wealth. But like Carrie said, instead of waiting on the Lord... He went out amassing it for himself, and we're going to look at that in more detail on what we looked at today, how she, the Queen of Sheba came in and, to, and looked and admired and saw all these things. And what was your impression when you read that account of Sheba, the Queen of Sheba coming? Yes. And her impression was she came for the wisdom. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Isn't that amazing? A wealthy woman was impressed by the wealth. That tells you something, right? So it was, this was a man then that concerning wealth, it's one thing to to have wealth and for God to bless you with wealth. But what did he do with his wealth? 
He could have fed the world. He could have provided comfort and ease. But what did we find out about Solomon, even concerning his own people and the way that he ruled them? He put the heavy, heavy yoke of burden upon them in order to amass this much wealth. Yes, they were not happy. And last week I took you all to see that. Remember, I said, let's go forward. And, and of course, I took you to the wrong verse, but, and Janice rescued us. But because but I, I, I went to the wrong chapter. But, but the, the point is, is that he, he had these great blessings. He had all this wealth. There was opportunities there for him to really um, glorify God with it. And what did he do with his wealth? He just amassed more and then put pressure on his people to keep bringing more and more and more. He was never happy with the status as quo, whatever it was that God was going to give to him, I guess. Yes. Nope. Well, you tell me, Carol, because I know you, you've had experience with this. Is, is physical labor the only kind of heavy yoke that a person can have? It's yes. Right. And I, I just think, uh, in my mind, I'm going, I don't do necessarily, phys I'm not out mowing lawns and, and, and working uh, physical labor, in building houses or, or highways or whatever. But there are times when my workload gets really heavy and I feel a bit of an, oppressed, an oppression. I can get wore out because if I am taken away from being able to handle my own home, my own family, my own life, in order to take care of, in this case, it would be the king, then that can become a heavy yoke of, and a burden. Uh -huh. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. <laughs> yes. Very interesting that he mentions that, that, he, that, that Solomon actually is made reference. Now, whether it's symbolic or literal, I'm not sure, but uh, probably literal, that, that those who were not producing enough, were not putting out as they should, were not meeting the, the status quo that he had given to them, that... Uh, this is the amount of work that you have to accomplish. Your people have to do this much. And he used whips to keep them in line and to punish them. So he was a harsh king. And that, uh, that, to me, surprised me about Solomon. I didn't realize he was that harsh. But he was so harsh, so harsh, that what happened when Solomon died and his son came up and they went to him and they said, Please give us relief from this heavy burden. What, and when the son said, what, no, forget it, what was their response? 
so Carol, to me, if if I go to my boss and say, boss, this is just too much. I cannot do this much. And he says, oh, you think that's bad? I'm going to add all this. And he piles more on you. And he pushes you to a point where what? What are you going to end up doing? Quitting. Quitting my job. That's basically, I mean, that's in a very simplistic manner. But that is what, so they revolted. No, no. But the... The, well, because they had their own personal lives and their own personal nations. Well, I wouldn't call them nations, tribes. You know, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan. They each had their own area that they were responsible. And per, within that, they had their own personal family. And this king was taking the, the, the remember we talked about this before, he takes the cream of the crop of every family, the smartest, the brightest, the strongest, the, the most capable for whatever position he wants, and he was taking those out of those families and making them just servants to him. And so the families were missing out on their best and brightest to help them to be able to make a living. So... It does talk about it. One of the things that it mentioned in there was the fact that uh, he, bu he built the Milo and he closed off the city. And th uh, the inference there is that basically he had done all this work, but then he was, he was closed off from even doing some of the, the work that he had done before. But now he's, he was still was not set free to go home. He was still under the servitude of the king. So, I mean, some of it's inferences, and, and quite honestly, if we did more research, we could probably figure out more points to be angry about that we could see are obvious breaches. Okay, I noticed that Benjamin stayed with Judah. Yes. How come? Well, because Benjamin and Judah, who are they? Of the father who? David. They're the, of the, they are called the house of David. So Benjamin and Judah were the two, were the two that, that uh, stayed with, with the house of David. I don't know why. God said, I'm going to rip ten from your hands. And there's how many tribes? Twelve. God left two in place. Maybe, I don't know what God's thinking was, but I think it has a lot to do with also the alliances of Benjamin and Judah together were very strong. Because Benjamin was, was the... Uh, was the uh, youngest son, correct, of right, right, and so there was the youngest and the oldest, so the youngest and the oldest, and they, they were the link, and they were so tied at the hip in, um, what is the right word, faithfulness towards one another, that God left them together is my guess, but the scripture doesn't say why. And let my brother go. Yes. I mean, if we went back and did the, the research on this, which we haven't done, and I've not done it either, so I can't, I'm only guessing at some of this, so I hate to even stand up here and talk about something I really don't know anything about. But, you know, my guess is we would figure it out, but we know that there was a close bond between Judah and, and Benjamin. And they were, God refers to them in scripture from this point forward. Did you notice the way that the terminology is? He refers to the, the two uh, southern tribes as the house of David. 
right? Or it's also called Judah or Judah and Benjamin. But then the ten northern tribes are called what? Israel. Israel. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they got the title Israel? There's, I mean, I'm, we're just guessing here. There you go. That was my thought. That's where I went, Carrie. I thought, well, just because it's the bigger piece of the pie, so they get to keep the name. I don't know. Right. Well, and so God, God called it that, yeah. And it's because it's the majority, the, the masses of the population, 10 out of the 12 tribes. Okay. Any other? Yes. No, you don't. As a matter of fact, the only other place that it even makes mention is in, the, in last week's homework where it talked about him conquering all the cities and building all the cities. There is one verse in the middle of all of this that says, and he went to the house, to the house of the Lord three times a year, basically to, to check off the square that he went and worshipped. That's all he did. Not, not yeah. Not in, not in the way that we would like to have seen him now. There, what to me is interesting is, however, in the end of all this, does God still get glory out of this? Yes, because God gave him the wisdom, and it is world-renowned that God gave that wisdom to him. And therefore, when people look at what he did do with the wisdom, the knowledge, in other words, the human knowledge and strengths that he had, they recognize God had done that for Solomon. And then look at what he amassed with it. Look what he did with it. I mean, if, that, if you think about that, you guys, for you and I, that's the tip of the iceberg of what God can do in our life if we will seek him. If we seek him for our wisdom, we seek him for the blessings, right? And one day we're going to get the fullness of that when we, when we enter into the gates of heaven. You know, he, he will reward us. He will bless us. He will, you know, we will be living in the eternal glory of God. And we re will receive mounds more. I mean, think about it. Solomon built stairs with gold, but what does it say about heaven? The streets are of gold. They're paved with gold. Isn't that an amazing thought? And we inherit that. That's our inheritance. So, all right. Well, maybe we should move on so we get more done than just talking. I mean, this is a, this man is intriguing to say the least. And I thought it was quite comical when I discussed it with my daughter. And she said, Mom, he's a, he is a case study for the psychology classes that she took at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's that strange uh, and quirky of a personality. And in many ways, he's a, he's a what do you call it, a dichotomy? When it, it's like, he, he, yes, on one hand, he's this. But then on the other hand, he's this, right? He, it's this conflicting man that sometimes on the one hand you want to admire him but on the other hand you just want to shake your head and go what was he thinking right so interesting so in the end my point is God has written all things that we would learn from them and Solomon is in here that we would learn from his life and learn from the things that God either did through him or for him right and so as we observe him, we can, we can, at this point, I guess, most of us are just kind of 
frustrated and disgusted and disappointed, you know, because he's not living up to what our ideology always was. It's kind of like going to Mount Rushmore for the first time. If you've always heard about Mount Rushmore your whole life, you know, you just had this grand idea of it, and you get there and you're going, oh, it's kind of small compared to what I thought. You know, you're not quite as impressed when you go in person. Um, well, it is, but it's, it's, but I mean, I just remember... Uh, the point is, I remember when I just, the first time I went to it and, and looked at it, I went, I expected it to be much bigger. I don't know why, because in my mind, maybe as a little girl growing up, it, I just seemed like it should have been much grander. And at the point in my life when I went, I was in my early 20s, I hadn't really seen the world or seen anything great. But my mind, I had made it magnificently big. And so... Yeah, so when I got there, it just seemed smaller than it really was. Although it's still, it is a beautiful place. I'm not saying that. So, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And he, here is my reason why. And I know it is not our job to judge salvation of a soul, right? But it is our responsibility as inductive Bible study students to draw conclusions based on what God says. Um, when we looked at Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, we saw that it said that he believed God and then he was baptized, right? In the end, though, when Peter gave a rendition of, of his character to us, how was he described? So, the son of Satan and, you know, he was in the, the, in the galls of bitterness and he was enslaved to... I can't remember. I mean, it was bad stuff. All of it in, were indicators that showed you that he was actually not saved. Although the scripture initially said he believed and was baptized, right? But what did he believe is the question, right? Okay, so here's a good question then. When you look at Solomon, let's start with him. When we first were introduced to Solomon in 1 Kings 3, it said that Solomon loved the Lord, right? Let's do this. 1 Kings 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Okay, so here's our big heart that we just talked about, right? And in there it said that he loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Now, at what point in history are we talking about that he was walking in the statutes of his father David? The very early part of his reign, right at the very beginning, right? And then, then we see that word. He loved the, the Lord except, correct? Now let's list all the things that, that came about from the exception, just as a reminder of what it is that... Somebody said this to me the other day, and I thought was... And it stuck with me. It was either said to me in a sermon or, or I read it somewhere. But they, you know, we talk about, you can't judge a person, right? But yet Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. And so he went into the book of James and he said, in, he was talking, I think it was in the sermon I heard, he was talking about the book of James and he says, you know, God says that he sees your faith, um, he sees that you're saved by your faith. God does. God sees that you are saved by your faith, correct? It's faith that saves you. But how does man see if you're saved? By your fruit. By your fruit or your works. That's what James teaches. So I thought that was a very insightful point that the book of James is about man seeing your faith. It's not about God seeing your faith. It's about man seeing your faith. So in James, how do you see if a man is saved? And God 
tells us repeatedly, observe a man's work or his fruit. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to observe Solomon's fruit because in the same breath that he says he loved the Lord except then he goes on to give you some very clear points and let's just mention some of the things that we know even if they're not all in first Kings 3 but what did we see in first Kings 3 first first and foremost okay he worshiped at the high places and we know what that is right so we're going to put a sad face next to that. He worshipped at the, at, the, at the high places. All right. What else? Yeah. He married Pharaoh's daughter. And you can add many in there. That would work just great. Thank you, Kathleen. And when he married Pharaoh's daughter, last week we looked in a passage that talked to Israel just before they entered into the land where God gave clear commandments about who you're to marry, who you weren't. Do you remember where that is? Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's right. So let's put on here Deuteronomy 7. So he violated that. There's another sad face. He married Pharaoh's daughter. That was in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, or 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, rather. All right. And in doing that, in marrying Pharaoh's daughter there in verse 1 of chapter 3, what else did he, did he actually do? That's right. He made an alliance or a covenant. Was made with Egypt. So, and that's in 1 Kings 3.1. Again, another sad face, correct? So, in other words, in conclusion, what we can say about his life on the whole is, what did he not do? Yeah, he did not obey God. And, by the way, the scripture is very clear. God appeared to Solomon how many times? Not once, but twice. And it's very interesting to me that God mentions that because it's not like God's bragging, right? God just wants you to know. I didn't appear to him once. I appeared to him twice. And even though I appeared to him twice, what did he not do? He still did not keep my commandments. And, and that is amazing. In the end, this week, what we also saw him doing, besides breaking all of these commandments, he was amassing what? Amassing wealth. Amassed wealth, well, wealth and horses. Horses and women. There's got to be a country song in that somewhere, right? <laughs> and when he amassed wealth, now this week we looked at some other things. Let's look at those. This was on day two of your homework. If you'll flip over to day two's homework and look at all those cross-references that Kay had you look at in Deuteronomy 8, Mark 4. Um, what else was it? Uh, Matthew 6 and 1 Timothy 6, 1 John 2, Colossians 3. There were lots of verses in there. So what did you see that he, in conclusion from what you read in those verses, what does God say about a person who puts their faith or amasses wealth or puts their heart or sets their heart upon wealth? That you end up with a depraved heart because your mind is pulled away from God there you go your heart where your heart is right 
there are your treasure. Where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. So it's what you treasure that draws your heart into that, right? And, and what did he say in, let's see, I think it was in Matthew. Let me look here. Let me see. Yeah, I think it might have been Matthew. Yes. What does Matthew 6.24 say? What can you not do? You cannot serve both God and wealth. Would you say, if you had to just at this point look, look at Solomon's life, do you think he was serving wealth? It sure looks like it to me. He was spending so much of his time trying to amass wealth rather than waiting on God to simply bless the work of his hands and multiply his, his wealth for him. Instead, he went out pursuing it, and he made sure he, he covered every avenue in order to get there. And in doing so, what did he do along the way? He broke every law. He violated everything that God said, do not do. He did it in order to get to that goal. What's funny to me, and I don't know, how many, how many of you have done some commentary reading about this? Have, has anybody looked to see what the commentaries, or, what, or have you listened to other sermons? Am I the only one doing that? <laughs> I'm, I, it's a waste of time. Well, you know. I didn't say that. I said there's no extra time. Oh, there's no extra time. Oh. Okay. All right. I know. I know. I, you know what I do? I tend to put it on when I'm traveling, like in my car. I'm going from point A to point B. So I'll put on, instead of music, I will put on t uh, uh, lessons of various kinds. And I like, because I like to hear what they have to say. But, you know, these, th the assessments of these people about Solomon and his wealth and the horses and the things that he, I get just tickled because they're going, well, he made this alliance with the king of Egypt. But you know, it was commonplace in that day to do that. And that was what kings did. And I'm thinking, so are you saying that was okay for him to do that? Because that was commonplace for people? You're thinking what, that he was wise? And what would you say? Uh, more than maybe. I'd be going, ah, uh, no. Because God said, do not do that. As a matter of fact, concerning Egypt, what did he say? Do not go back by that way ever again. Do not go back. And God's um, pictorial imagery of Egypt on the whole is always, what is Egypt to Israel? It's slavery and bondage and sin. And I rescued you out of that. Don't go back. So for, the, for this king's first act as king to marry the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and it says in that verse 1, he did it, in, and in doing so, he made an alliance with the king of Egypt. So we know that it was political. It was a political move, and it was. But he did so in violation of God's word. Is that wisdom? Nope. That is not wisdom. So he amassed wealth and horses, and this, the, in the end of this, he says, you cannot, I'm going to write this on the board, you cannot serve God and money. God and wealth. Yeah. Matthew 6.24 says you cannot serve both. And we definitely saw that that was what he was attempting to do. Yes. As he was successful, it made him think he was doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. For gold, yes. 
Smart. That's a wise man. In the ways of the world. <laughs> That's right. And he exported it to what nations? The nations that were his enemies who hated him all the days of his life, as a matter of fact. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. And then he turned around and gave her twice as much back. <laughs> he would have. Martha, this is a very, very good point. And I, I've heard actually way back at the beginning, I heard someone say something along these lines. I don't remember who it was, so I, you know, I won't embarrass you. But someone, someone had said, well, God said he was going to get wealthy and promised that he would. So that's how he did it, right? No. <laughs> so that's so he just thought he would is there an application okay so is there an application for you and I in our personal lives are there promises that God has ever made to you in your heart you've just felt that the Lord has said I'm going to do this for you um I pro I'm promising this to you and then what do you what do you have a tendency to want to do Jump ahead of him and and go and get it right away. Um, I mean, this can go from from anything from personal ministry that you have in your heart that you want to do to something as simple as you know a husband or children or whatever. And so instead of waiting on God for Him to provide what he, what He wants you to have, we tend to have this tendency of stepping ahead of God and some of the questions I asked last week, is it okay to do or accomplish good things for God, but to do so in violation of any of the principles of God's moral laws? Can you, can you lie or steal or cheat or coerce other people or situations in order to attain what you're wanting? Even if there you go. There you go. The ends do not justify the means, or the means do not justify the end. Either way you look at it, you have to understand that to God, the most important thing is your moral character, your integrity before God. That's why he keeps saying, walk before me in this manner, right? Do, and, and for Solomon, he said, as your father David. Now, we know David made some mistakes, so he's not talking about people that are perfect. But what is he talking about? Now, we looked at Proverbs 30, right? What did you see in Proverbs 30? Yeah, that's really, that was really good. The, in Psalms 30, verse 2, he says, Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. I mean, he's talking about his physical life, okay? He's saying, I'm not physically going to die right now. I sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. It makes me think of what we studied in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where he says that God disciplines, just as a father disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines us. And it's a temporary thing. But in the end, what does it produce for us? Pardon? 
Righteousness, that's right. It produces righteousness in us and holiness, right? That we would be pleasing to the Lord in all things. So the difference that we see with David compared to what we see with Solomon, we do not see with Solomon ever, even in his other writings. I have never seen a repentant heart. We see him come to logical conclusions and wisdom where he makes statements, but we never see him crying out to God and saying, God, God, you know, help me. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. Do you guys remember we looked at that word supplication? Do you remember what that meant by definition? I looked it up a second time after I looked at this last night. It's uh, to be gracious, to show favor or pity, or to beg for mercy. So he, he cried out to God in supplication, begging God for mercy, considering who he was in relationship to God and having a, a correct assessment of that. And then he says to God, God in reply to his conversation with him in, in um, confession, he says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Isn't that awesome? Yes, Becky. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that would be a very good um, self-examination question for every one of us to evaluate our own life and say, Lord, is my life glorifying you or would it be better that I'd be dead. Now, that brings in that subject of people who sin unto death. There are some people who do have sin, so much sin in their life to the point that God then takes their life. Because if you become such a, um, what do you call it, deficit to God and to his name, his holy name, he can. Now, how often does he do that? I Obviously not very often because I am still breathing, right? But yet he can, and so the warning is there in Scripture, and we see records of times when he has done that. We see Ananias and Sapphira were a very good example of that, where God said, you have, you have shamed me, and I am birthing something new here. This is profoundly important that the church understand their relationship with me and how I expect them to behave, right? And lying to the Holy Spirit is not okay. And so he took their life. So, yeah, but da so David's question is, you know, what profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? And he's literally, he's actually, in a way, he's, he's convincing God that his, his life from this point forward, because of his repentance, because of his recognition of sin in his life and his confession of it, he's saying, I am still a value to you, God, because in my confession of my sin, then I can go on praising you. And I will, I will make a course correction. The thing that I think is most amazing with God is his sovereignty over all this. And I, God's will, this is, this is something I wanted to bring up this morning. Let's do it really right now because there's a few verses we did not do in homework. But people talk about this all, all the time. There's his perfect will, right? And we're going to contrast that with his permissive will. And we're going, to, we're going to look at a couple of verses real quickly, you guys. Someone look up Exodus uh, 23, or off the top of your head, what do you know Exodus 20, verse 3 is talking about? 
That's the ten, those are the Ten Commandments. So what do you think is being spoken of in the very beginning? His perfect will. And what is his perfect will for us? That you shall what? That's right. Well, yeah, that's in the Matthew verse. So, well, or Mark. In Mark 12, 28, 29, we, Jesus reiterates it. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus reiterates it. He restates it. And that is God's perfect will. Right? He has a perfect will for us. So his perfect will is, you shall have no other gods before me. Sorry. Okay, the, and that's in Exodus 20, verse 3, basically. It's, it's, a, it's Katie's conclusion of it. And in this one, that you shall have no other gods before me is in Matthew and in Mark. You shall uh, love the Lord your God. And that's with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm really super shortening these, you guys. I hope you're okay with that in order to save a little bit of writing time here. Okay, so that's in Mark 12, 28 and 29. It's also in Matthew. So when you look in 1 Kings chapter 9, what is it that he called uh, Solomon to? What did he call later Rehoboam to and Jeroboam to and all those? Da he called David to this as well. Go, somebody read 1 Kings 9, 4. All right, so God's perfect will is laid out. Do you think God's perfect will today has changed in any manner? Well, the Mark passage shows us that it has not. God established this from the beginning. He wants to love you with all, with all your heart. He wants you to put no other gods before him. You shall have no other gods before me whatsoever. And in the case of wealth, we came to see through our cross-references that wealth can become what? It can become your God. And if that's the pursuit of your heart, where your heart is, there, there is where your treasure is, or where your heart, how does that go? Where your heart is, there shall your treasure be. No, where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. I see my dyslexia throwing me back again. Okay, so his perfect will for you is that you are to put him first in your life. Now, we also have to remember there is his permissive. Now, Celeste and I had a conversation about about this and she was also you know verbalizing displeasure with the things that she's seeing with Solomon and how disappointing it is to us to see what's going on but then the question begs why if God knows this did God choose Solomon does God know the end from the beginning did he know the path that Solomon was going to go down and yet what did God still do he still chose Solomon, right? So if he's choosing Solomon, and yet his perfect will is this, and yet he's got Solomon in there as the king, and Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, and all these other kings that are going to come after, 
that takes us all the way even to present day. The kings or the leaders that we have in our world today are God-anointed, God-ordained, God-appointed. They're only there by God's grace. They are only there by God's divine appointment. Now, if we, don't, if we lose sight of that and say, yeah, but that guy's evil, that can't be God's appointment. Yes, it can. Because your question has to be then, what is God doing when he allows even the evil of the world to run its uh, course? What is God's ultimate designed purpose, right? It's kind of like what we said earlier. What's the point in a Bible if the only thing that's written in it are these perfect people who do perfect things their whole life? What hope is there in that for you and me? Because are you and I perfect? Could we possibly read the storyline of perfect people and be encouraged? Not really. <laughs> because we would always look at ourselves and see that we don't measure up. And that would be a defeated feeling for us. And so in God's word, he has a permissive will as well concerning Israel. What might be God's permissive will when it comes to Solomon? Um, as I pondered on this, my mind went back to the very beginning when Israel was demanding a king. What did God warn them about? That exactly what Solomon has done is what they would do. They would take your sons and daughters. They would have to work for him. That they would amass horses. And, well. and so then when he gave them the law concerning the king, he said, this is what a king is supposed to do. He is not going to do these things, and he is going to do these things, right? And we've looked at that over and over. So the fact that God... Um, foreordained Solomon to sit on this throne for Israel, what we have to do then is try to evaluate in the picture of God's perfect will why his permissive will was going th through Solomon and these other kings that are going to come after. What is it that he's wanting us to learn? Well, one of the things he wants us to learn through his permissive will is God's character, who our God is in relationship to us. The first thing he wants us to see is his patience. So we're going to look at a couple of verses. I want you to go to Numbers 14, 18. Who will take that one for me? Thank you, Donna. Um, someone else look at Exodus 34, 6. Who wants that one? Okay, thank you, Martha. Uh, and along with that one is also Nehemiah 16, Nehemiah 9, 16 to 24. Who wants that one? It's a bit longer. Kathleen, thank you. And one more, and that's going to be in Deuteronomy 8.2. I love this one. Who wants Deuteronomy 8.2? Uh, uh, Martha, thank you. Two Marthas and a Mary, right? No, we forgot our Mary. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, who said they would do Numbers 14.18? Thank you, Donna. So in there, what do we see then about God's patience? His permissive will is that he is slow to, God is slow to anger, right? And, but then it goes on and it gives us more sights, insights about God and his permissive will too. What else does it say? Loving kindness. Loving kindness is God's heart, right? And what is loving kindness associated with? 
it has to do with his covenant promises. Now, when you think back to Israel as a nation in the very root of its beginning with Abraham, was, is Israel as a nation a result of covenant? And were there promises made concerning this nation? Yes. So what you see then in his permissive will is although he, he, he is teaching, he is allowing these things to happen, and what we see through the watching of these things is man is imperfect, God is perfect. God can take even the bad things, and in that he reveals to us who he is. We see him as one who is slow to anger, one who is faithful to his loving kindness. That's his heart, right? Okay, go, let's go to Exodus 34, 6. Wow. Okay, so again, it reiterates his loving kindness. So he's speak, I think that's speaking about Moses, right, when he walks before Moses, and Moses sees the glory of God from behind. And in that, what Moses saw about who God was is that he was compassionate, slow to anger, filled with loving kindness, right? Again, loving kindness being a covenant word. Nehemiah 9, 16 to 27. Who has that? Was that, that one was Kathleen. Oh, okay. I may have even said it wrong. Who knows? Yes, 16 to 27. Should we skip it? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yes. When they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, you said, and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemy to you, and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. That's good. Uh, what I, one of the reasons I picked that verse is because it, not only does it show, again, the, the loving kindness of God, the compassion of God, the patience of God, but it does so by actually speaking about Israel as a nation and the things that they did to defy God and to rebel against God, even when God was keeping them in the wilderness all those years, even when he was providing them manna, providing them water, providing them a, a, a guidance through his, his pillar of light and pillar of fire, or, or, anyway, this, the, the cloud and the fire. So God's patience in that, and yet Israel's constantly rebelling, and yet God was patient. And one of the reasons I also picked that verse out is because he makes mention of the golden calves. Do you remember what we see at the end of our lesson this week with Jeroboam? What does Jeroboam do? These are the, this is what led you out of Egypt, even though it was God in this passage in Nehemiah. 
uh, 9, he says, it is God that led them out of the uh, uh, of Egypt and led them through the wilderness and led them by the pillar of light, right? <laughs> I hope it's quick. I read that, I was like, okay, I want to read further because God's about to take him out. But you know, okay, so you look at these leaders that God allows to be in positions, and as you're watching them lead so badly, what are we assessing and learning? Repeats itself. Repeats itself. Yes. And if we don't learn from history, which is what we're doing here. Right. Just as we are in today, we haven't learned our lessons in history, and it's repeating itself. Yes. We are back in the situation we were 50 years ago. Yes. Yes. You know? Yes. It seems like there. it's a secular. Forsaking God and secularism and all of these other things. But. Gosh, those two times a year, we're going to go to church on Easter and Christmas. There you go, which is what Solomon did. He went to the house of the Lord three times a year. His life, to me, is so like our nation is not any different than what Israel is. So I think we need to be careful not to judge, but to well, from. Yes, okay, yeah. It's, there's a di- there, I do say we should talk about this. There's a difference, in my opinion, of being judgmental. Because I got to tell you, I have had people in my life who have said, I'm judgmental. And I'm judgmental because, why? Because I stand on God's word as the principles for my life measurement. It's what I, so, and they don't like it. So it's one thing to look at your government today and, quote, not be too judgmental. Yes, I can be judgmental if what they're doing is wrong and immoral. Because it's not me that's saying, it's, it's who. It's God. God is one. So for me to call someone to the to put their feet to the fire, so to speak, and to make them be accountable, to live in a in a righteous manner, and especially, what does God say about about the household of faith? That judgment begins where? At home. At the at the household of faith, it belongs first to the church, first and foremost, brothers and sisters. We have one brother. One brother and all the rest sisters right now. <laughs> Shoo. Don, you are amazing, faithful man. And we are so thankful to have you here. Yay, Don. And bring more of your buddies, would you? <laughs> because we need our men. Our men are our spiritual leaders. They should be learning these truths. These are the fundamentals that build foundation in your life. And you and I need to learn that the first and foremost, we are accountable to hold each other accountable. Judgment begins at the household of faith. We aren't just looking out there at the government in regards to the things that we're learning. We're also looking inward at the governmental running of our own households and our own churches. And we are, if, if, if anyone is accountable to God, we are. Yes, God will hold the nations accountable, but first and foremost, judgment belongs to us. And so we need to, not that he will con- condemn us into, you know, being separated from God in any way, because if you have the Spirit of God, you are, your salvation is secure. But there is accountability in our faith walk with God. Yes, Susan. Well, along those lines, when Rehoboam starts instituting all these new religious things, why does nobody step up and say... Good question, Susan. Okay, so what does that tell you then about the the temperature reading of Israel as a nation, those 10 tribes that went with him, 
And remember the, the story of the woman at the well when Jesus approaches her? I thought of that one. As soon as I saw what Rehoboam did and that it was that he, he um, had them form two calves, place them in two locations so that people would be able to, to have access to them. And I thought it was funny. The first thing he said was, it's too far for you to go down to Jerusalem. But yet they're willing to come all the way from way down here, all the way up to Dan, to come and worship at that calf. So right away, the scriptures um, subtly indicate that it has nothing to do with distance, right? And if anybody who's ever been to Israel has ever been to Israel, it's not that far to anywhere. (laughs) Because Israel's small, (laughs) right? It's just a little, now by donkey, it may take a few days, but you know, it's not that far. people will go down there and they'll be converted back. So he had a problem, but he should have taken that problem to the Lord yeah. rather than to do the cat. Unbelievable, yes. And I, I just think the whole storyline of Jeroboam is is perplexing to me that on the one hand, he totally believed this prophet when yeah. he came to him and said, I'm going to rip 10 parts from his hand and give them to you. And so then the first thing he does is he runs to Egypt why was he going to Egypt? Uh, you know, there you go again. Yeah. Because we have an alliance with him. Because Solomon had already opened that door. That alliance didn't need me. Remember, you know, the, there's some children, surely, from the Pharaoh's uh, alliance, I mean, Pharaoh's daughter. And that shows that Pharaoh was not very loyal. I mean, well, maybe, but I think of it more as Solomon had opened the door, and so had, quite honestly, David in some ways, too, through his alliances with, with uh, the king of Tyre and so forth. But the, do- the door was already opened, and the forbiddenness of going back to Egypt was not there. The concept was in the mind. It's kind of like we talk about you know, being desensitized by too much TV, too much media, too much commercials and movies, and pretty soon... What used to be a shock to us is now commonplace and acceptable, right? Well, apparently, Susan, at this point in history, it was just okay to go hang out down in Egypt, right? So he, that's what he did. When he, when he was told this was going to happen, he runs to Egypt, and he goes there. And then as soon as um, Solomon dies, what, what happens? They bring Jeroboam or Rehoboam back up from Egypt and say, or Jeroboam, rather, back up from Egypt and I know. I wish those two names were not so close together. <laughs> They're messing me up. <laughs> yes. Solomon. Yeah. Yeah. So he went down because Solomon heard, I'm sure, that the prophet had said, I'm going to rip ten parts of this kingdom from you. So interesting to me is one of Solomon's last acts on earth before he dies is to try to kill the one that God said, I'm going to give 10 portions. Solomon, your punishment for not walking with me as your father David did, I am going to rip 10 portions of this kingdom from you and give it to another. And so as soon as he finds out God's going to do this, he tries to kill the man that God said, I'm going to give him to. So then the guy runs to Egypt. Reminds me of Saul when he pursued after David in that incident. Yes. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. And that's what I'm saying. So when we look at Solomon's demise, we are seeing that he loved the Lord. And so, yes, for me, Kathleen, I would color in this heart black. Because in the end, what we saw in the conclusion of it in, uh, was it First, First Kings? Um, I'm looking for... 11.6, there it is, yes. 1 Kings 11, let's go. 1 Kings 11.6. It says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord was angry with Solomon because he did evil. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it verse 9, not 6? 6 and 9. 6 said he did evil in 9. Okay. Okay. In the eyes of the Lord. So that is God's last word concerning him. And so when we looked at the comparison, the contrast of that is his father David. And we saw Psalm 30 show us a repentant heart. And we saw faithful walking. Even though he failed along the way, we also know that he was repentant when, when his sins were brought to his attention or when he realized he had his sins. What, what kind of hope does that give you and I? Sure. So what does that tell you for you and I then? So we have a, a God. He has promised. We see the first thing about his permissive will. We see patience. We were going to look at one more verse. It was Deuteronomy 8.2. I love this verse because it's an awesome one. I'm sorry, Martha. I, I messed you up, didn't I? Yes, if you've got it. Okay, so what is the reason then that God allows... Some of these things in the world. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow bad rulers? Why does God even allow you and I sometimes to walk in a wayward manner? He's testing us. To, and ultimately, it's to bring us back. But he's, he's testing to see whether or not we will be faithful to him. So the journey of, of our faith walk, the journey that we go on in, the, in this life that we're in, is all about God testing to see will you be faithful to him. When you are sick, when you have lost loved ones, when your money is gone, when, when you are at the, at the base of just agony in your heart and despair, are you cursing God or crying out to God? Right? Are you digging your heels in deeper and continuing to walk in disobedience or are you repenting and turning around to go the other way? And that's the distinguishing difference between Solomon and his father, David. So if we would had had that chance. Another one is that God is slow to anger and great in power, but by no means he will leave the guilty un, unpunished. We saw that back in the Nehemiah one that we looked at. It's also in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, if you want to look at that. That God is patient, he is just, righteous, Right? We don't have time to look at all of these things, but uh, Nehemiah 9.30, it says, The Lord bore with Israel for many years and admonished them by his spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, 
God gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. So in, in time, we know this because we studied Ezekiel. What God eventually has to do is to, is to um, punish them. First, he sent the, first, the ten tribes that we're talking about right now into Assyria. And then he followed that about 100 years or so later with the, with the south going into Babylonian captivity. Okay, he's checking to see if our heart belongs to him. That was in Deuteronomy 8.2, okay? Then the last thing is it talks about his, his covenant keeping. In Nehemiah 9.31, nevertheless, in his great compassion, he did not make an end of Israel or forsake them, for he is a gracious and compassionate God. So we do see God intervening at periodic moments, um, with these kings, and we're going to see more of it as we move into these other kings, how God is going to respond to them and to their poor leadership, but he does not ever forsake his covenant people, Israel. Yes. 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 But we don't have any pictures except for a throne of ivory and right. you know, what did it look like? We have the written record is all we have, and all we can do is imagine. But it was the imagining was re, was really revealed to us most clearly with what Sheba says, I think, with the record of what the Queen of Sheba, as as was said earlier, the Queen of Sheba who in her own right was wealthy right? And she comes in to test the, the wisdom and the knowledge of Solomon. And when she arrives, she sees the grandeur, the luxury, the wealth, the, the, the excessive glory, basically, of this whole kingdom. And she is totally breathless. <laughs> breathless. I thought that was a perfect word, to, because that really does... T tell you everything. I'm right there. And even if you don't, if, if the written record isn't detailed enough, the fact that she was she was breathless tells you something, right? And I think that it's just to note this is the house of the Lord that we're talking about. Yes. Here, that he willingly walked away from after he built. Yes. And you know, I think that for me, that's that's something you spent your life building something and then to turn. How quickly he turned also is amazing. What do you think was the crack in the door which gave the Satan the, the, basically the foothold in his life? The woman. The woman. The woman he married in defiance. It makes me, you guys, you know what, though? This makes Genesis chapter 6 makes so much more sense, where it says that the sons of God married the daughters of men, whomever they chose. It was an act of willful defiance against God's law. Now, we know that, there, that we didn't have the written law as we know it today yet, but obviously, because of the fact that it shows a defiance of willfulness, there was a known law by them that they were not to marry the daughters of men. That they were to marry in, in other words, be equally yoked, as the New Testament teaches us. That 
believers are to marry believers. Your believing sons and your believing daughters are only to date and marry those who are believers. Because what happens when you don't? Bad company corrupts good morals. It rarely goes the other way. Now, there are the exceptions to the rule. I get that. But it is, it is pretty rare. And so in the Noah account, what happened? The, the scripture says, in the end, the world became totally corrupt. Totally corrupt. So that God wiped out every man and woman and child on the, the face of the earth, except for those that were in the ark. That is, that is a, a lesson to have learned. Okay, so we have just, righteous, and he is a covenant keeper. All right, so this just, I just kind of wanted to bring this part up because I've had conversations with a few of you, um, one of you more often than others, but about this conflict of feeling about why does God allowing this? And the one, the one point that, I, that came to me real clearly this week was there is God's perfect will and there is his permissive will. Repeatedly over and over in this book, God presents, and he does so again with Jeroboam. Did you notice? Offers to him the same covenant. Jeroboam, if you will follow me, if you will walk in the ways of, of, of David, that's right, then I will keep your throne. I will protect your throne. I will keep you on the throne, right? Yes, Yes, even when there's defiance, and you know what's to me amazing is God does that even though he knows the end from the beginning. He knows where they're going. He, know, he knew where Solomon was headed. He knows where Jeroboam is going, where Rehoboam is going. He knew where David was going, and in all of those cases, he gave equal opportunity. It's an equal opportunity faith system. He wants all to come to, to him and none to perish, no, not one. So he keeps offering and offering. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's faithful to his covenant promises. Yes. Yes. That's right. And so God was accomplishing exactly what he wanted to do. And with that point in mind, Carrie, what does that tell you about even our world today? Why do you think the world today is so venomous against Israel as a nation? What do you think is at the heart of it in your assessment? Jealousy? Okay, they're God's people. Okay, so is it jealousy that they're God's people and they're not, or is it a a jealousy over something else? I mean, what what do you think is really going on? Lois? Okay, we know that thus far Israel has rejected. That's true. But why do you think, for instance, Syria and Iran and Iraq and all these nations that surround them, why do they want Israel wiped off the face of the earth? There you go. That's the heart of it. Because the world is anti-God. If they can destroy Israel, what do they do to God's promise through Israel as a nation? They think that they're going to stop God. Okay, this is kind of the picture of Solomon. Solomon found out that God was judging him. 
and that he was going to give 10 of the tribes to uh, Jeroboam, right? And so, and so what did he try to do? Tried to kill him because he wanted to stop God's judgment of ripping this. Who can stop the hand of God? It is. Yes. Say it again. Who's not a... He is an Israelite. He's from Ephraim. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that right now. So let's cover some of that. Let's look at the Lord's sovereignty in this, just by, as an additional few points to cover, because there's so much to cover today. The Lord raised up adversaries to Solomon, right? Okay. Now, who is he raising up adversaries to? Against Solomon. <laughs> I just want you to make sure you see that very clearly. That God raised up, because again, it's, it's what is God saying about someone that matters, not what we assess from other things that we read. But what is God saying? God says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God says he did not walk in the way that his father did. God says of him, I'm going to raise up adversaries. God says, I'm ripping 10 of these from your hand. So what we're seeing then is how God did this. How did God raise up adversaries? Well, the first one was a man named Hadad, right? Now we're in 1 Kings chapter 11, and Hadad is an Edomite, right? We see that in 1 Kings 11, verse 14. So what did we learn about, about Hadad? I'm not going to write all this on the board. I just want to talk it through. Okay. Why had he fled to Egypt? Okay. Who was going to wipe his tribe out? Or who did wipe his tribe out? Joab, it did. And if you look it up, David also, right? So David and Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army and David. So in a good way, I mean, he was doing, I guess, the wiping out. But it's very interesting because Edom is where? Outside of, thank you, Carrie. That was my point. I was hoping someone would pick up on that. It's interesting to me that Edom, if, we, if you remember, I think last week, I might have this wrong. Someone correct me if I am. But God had his hand of protection upon Edom, right? God said, don't touch these people. When you come through this land, you're not, you're not to force your way through. Because God had them preserved for a specific purpose. All right, so here we see a picture of David and Joab trying to wipe Edom out. And they were pretty much successful, except one little lone guy got away, right? And so he sneaks down to Egypt. And while he's down in Egypt, the king of Egypt there befriends him and we see he has a family he marries the queen's the queen's sister. sister right okay so it's great but after David and Joab's death then what does this kid this guy Hadad do he attempts to return and to basically for revenge number one probably but also to do what yeah, to reclaim his, his land. Right, so he's an Edomite. Okay, so he is enemy to Solomon. 
He comes to reclaim his land. And I'm going to underline his land because it is his land, right? It wasn't land that God had given Israel. It was the land of Edom. His land, Edom. The royal line of Edom. Okay. Okay, so that's, the, that's one adversary that God rose up for him. He, he was exterminated off the land by his enemy Solomon and also David. I'm just going to add David's name on here and give you a verse. In 2 Samuel 8.13, you see it's in that area that the whole storyline is about David and Joab and them going in and taking that land away. Okay, then there's another guy. His name was Razan or Rezon. Okay, and what do we know about him? Okay, so, and where is Zoba? Here's another problem. It's in Syria, right? Very interesting. It's in a certain portion of Syria, but he was, he was a servant to the king of Zoba, which was Syria, and he had rebelliously fled from him. So that's who he started out with. So which is kind of gives you a little backdrop to this man. He's even rebellious against his own leader. <laughs> so this guy's got a lot of rebellion in him. First he was rebelling against his own king. And then when his own king got killed, then what? He rises up because he is a strong leader, apparently, and he's capable of getting people around him to follow him. And now he becomes, I love the title. He's, what is he the leader of? A marauding band. <laughs> He's an outlaw. He's an outlaw. <laughs> it makes you think of um, uh, Robin Hood, you know, <laughs> or something like that. All right. So when David uh, slew Z Zobah, he became leader of a marauding band. So he reigned in Damascus. Now, where is Damascus? It's at the top. It's in Syria. It's actually the capital of Syria, right? It was their capital city. And, and he reigned in Damascus over an area called Aram, A-R-A-M, which is just a portion of Syria. It, it's like became a subdivision. Syria was bigger, and he took a small portion, and he called it Aram, and that's where he ruled, okay? That was after David and them had gone in. Uh, so he, it said on there he was an adversary to Israel. How, when? <laughs> okay. Adversary to Israel. All the days of Solomon. This just really, to me, was quite interesting, just to see how sovereign God is on this, that, that first of all, both, in both cases, these were nations and lands that were not given to Israel as their own. They don't take the lands that are theirs, but then they're trying to take lands that aren't. And this is... A mystery to me but it's true one was Syria one was Edom north and south in the middle is Israel that was supposed to be the land in which King Attire rested on and they let him stay there does this make sense to anybody no okay. all right so then the last one that's raised up is Jeroboam and th this one I think is also quite interesting because its root and the reason why that Jeroboam became um, an adversary to Solomon was because of what? Okay, well, but he, it just kind of gives you a backdrop to who he is. 
right in there. It's very interesting. This is in verse 26, 27, and 28. The first thing we learn about him, he's an, he's an Ephraimite. So he's from Ephraim, the, right? And how else is he described? A valiant warrior, industrious. And therefore, because he was recognized as being capable of being a good leader, what, what happened with him? He was put in charge of forced labor. Again, we see a perfect example of, again, what the king does. He finds the best, the strongest, the most capable, and he procures them for his own uses. And that's what he did with this man. And, and what we learn then as we go further into the storyline is that Israel really resented this. Even though they were put as, for, as uh, overseers over the forced labor, they still considered it to be... Uh, a hard burden upon them, right? Harsh treatment. And so then what makes him an adversary is what God does, right? What did God do? He prophesied. He prophesied through Ad-Adajah. I'm probably saying that all wrong. A-H-I-J-A-H, right? That he would what? Yeah, that he would receive ten tribes to rule. And so that made him an enemy. And that was in verse 31 of First uh, Kings 11. I love this part. And this is going to go back to, the, to the, the, the sovereignty of God or even to the character of God, his permissive will. It reveals to us these things about him, that he's patient, just, righteous, a covenant keeper. But here what we see is in 1 Kings uh, 11, look at verse 38 to 40. Somebody read that. And what did God do there? Yes, please read it. Because if you missed this as an offer of covenant opportunity with him, between him and God, I want you to see it. Wow. So again, what we see then is God is an is equal opportunity for salvation, for blessing, right? For relationship with him. And he said in 1 Kings eleven, thirty-eight to forty that God basically extended covenant to Jeroboam. And it was the same covenant he had extended to Solomon and to David before him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So again, you find, you, you find then that God's permissive will is that then Jeroboam, he institutes what? His own worship, his own system for worship. Outside of Jerusalem. And why is that so important? This is the place which you, in which you shall. This is the place I have chosen. This is where you shall worship me, right? So the, the same covenant had been offered to David and Solomon. It was offered to Jeroboam. And what does Jeroboam do immediately? He, he 
he develops his own worship system. What verses was that in, by the way? Let me put that up here. In 11, what? Yeah. Oh, it's in 12. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm in the next word. Okay. 28 to 33. Okay, I'm just going to get the right verse on there. First Kings 11, and then in, in chapter 12, then he goes to show that his first response to God is, <laughs> let me just make my own system of worship. And by the way, when he makes this system of worship, he creates these, he, he creates calves out of gold again. What does he say about those calves? They were what delivered their people out of Egypt. The calves, the golden calves were. Now, if anybody knows anything at all, for, for us, we all know this storyline. You go back to the golden calf story, and what happened? God, God destroyed many of them because of their worshiping of this golden calf. It was not God. And if you know the storyline before, we looked at some of these other verses in Nehemiah and Deuteronomy and Exodus and so you go back and look at the storyline who led them by a pillar of light by and a cloud of mist God it was God that was leading them and yet Jeroboam's first response to God's offer of covenant was to develop his own worship system going back to the golden calves of Egypt which by the way where had he just come out of Egypt so what had he been re-exposed to idolatry What a mess. I'm a little depressed. So in order to get us out, to get us out of this, okay. Yes, from bad to worse. And we didn't, we, we didn't cover everything like we normally do, you know, systematically going through. But we did a lot of discussion. I think we covered a lot of it. But I have a great article here that I thought kind of did a really good job of summarizing Solomon. I want to read some of it to you. But before I do that, I just want to give you, here's an FYI on your sheet when you get it. You'll see this FYI. I want to show you. These are dates that are given um, and there's a website will be on your chart when I send it out. It said John MacArthur's ministry on there. So I, I'm assuming that must be who put this out. But it's only by rule of thumb, okay? So nothing specific here. First, I want to tell you, Solomon ruled from 971 to 931. So that gives you a point of reference, okay? From 971 to 931. And now these are the approximate dates for his writings. Okay, we're going to look at Song of Solomon. And they have on here 971 to 965. So do you see where that is in relationship to his ruling? He wrote it very early on, shortly after the Lord gave him his gift to, um, of wisdom. And then Proverbs was also 971 to uh, 686. So that one is a real, I bet that was supposed to be nine, 986. Sorry. Yeah, it's a typo. I got to fix that on my, okay. And then, okay, so, okay, I'm just going to put the first part. 971, and I'll have to check my, I'll go back and check my sheet. I wonder if my other sheet has it. Hold on a second, because I have the whole sheet right here. Maybe I've got it 
correct there. Um, that's weird. Okay, it says 686 on here, but that can't be right, correct? Okay, so there's a typo on their sheet, so I can't tell you what the other one is. But early, in other words, probably early in his, in his, right. Right, yeah, right. Yes. Okay, and then the last one is Ecclesiastes. And it's 940 to 931. So that would be right those last few years of his life was Ecclesiastes. Which Ecclesiastes is the most difficult and the most problematic as far as it feels like. <laughs> and it, this thing will give you some insight on that. Now the other. <coughs> Sorry, i got to get a drink here. Hold on. All right, the other thing I wanted to show you was the dating writing of these other books. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 931 to 722. 1 Kings, 2 Kings was 561 to 538. And then 1 and 2 Chronicles. is 450 to 430 because somebody was asking me about these things before and I didn't know what the datings were in relationship to when things were written but it is interesting that you see the his first two great wisdoms were given when he when God first gave him his wisdom and they are the they are the ones that you and I rely on always and you will get this list so don't you don't have to worry. I will send it to you. Actually, I will send you the entire um, sheet that I got. It says, uh, when, I just typed in, when were the Bible books written by dates? And it gave me this was one of the sites. And I just opened it up and printed it off. So it's not like I studied it out. So none of this is really confirmed. And the good thing is, um, when I opened it to see whose ministry it was, it showed John MacArthur. And they also say in there, these are according to their most probable dates. So, you know, there's always room for play on these things. Okay, now, with that much done, I want to read something to you. This article I found a couple, of, oh, maybe three or four weeks ago. I've been hanging on to it because I wanted to get through uh, Solomon before I read it because I didn't want to give you, you know, presuppositions on things. But this is really Cool. Listen to this. This is from jewishhistory.org. Free crash course in Jewish history, it says. <laughs> and this is about Solomon. 480 years after the exodus from Egypt, uh, in the economically imperial, imperially, including land, it controlled directly in alliances it had militarily, intellectually. It just goes on and on. It happened under the reign of, of Solomon, king of David. The problem with reaching the zenith. So he talks about the Jewish commonwealth reached its zenith. That's what he says first. Reached what? Reached its zenith. Okay. It's, it's top. Okay. Dur while it was under the control of Solomon. 
Okay? Then it says, it happened under the reign of Solomon, son of David. The problem with reaching the zenith is that the only way to go is down. <laughs> Once you're at the top, where else is there to go but down, right? At the beginning of Solomon's life, the dreams and promises of the Bible have been fulfilled, including the building of the temple. By its end, the prediction that the Jewish people would not be able to handle success was fulfilled. <laughs> Sad. The Jewish people waxed fat, this is what scripture says, and started to kick. That's in Deuteronomy 32, 15. Success is a heady wine. Even an individual as great as Solomon had a, and a people as great as the Jewish people were unable to sustain their success. Now, I think that's a really good point because you and I, as we are observing what's going on here, and what is God's purpose, his perfect will, his permissive will, why, where in his permissive will, what are we seeing about Solomon? What we're seeing here through this man's life is that, that God is the only king that will be a true king, that will be a, a, a king that we can follow without fail and without faltering, and who has no weakness, right? There, if you have any human king, if you and I put anyone in a position of leading us as a king over our lives, including teachers, pastors, preachers, anyone that you spiritually think is um, admirable, at some point they're going to fail you, right? They will fail you including me. I will fail you at some point. I'll do or say something and you'll just shake your head at me. So he, he's saying that, that even an individual as great as Solomon and a people as great as the Jewish people were unable to sustain their success. Solomon was an immensely complex and layered personality. So this one fit right in with what my daughter said about him with her classes at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. For that reason, both the biblical record as well as the oral tradition exhibit ambivalence towards him, unlike that toward any, uh, anyone else. Solomon is both heroic and anti-heroic. He presents grandeur, nobility, wisdom, piety, and at the same time he re represents base desires, pettiness, and self-destructive tendencies. Would we all agree with that at this point? We're like, yes, I am, I feel like I'm schizophrenic when I'm reading this man. Solomon was 12 when he succeeded to the throne, according to their assessment. He reigned 40 years and died at the age of 52. The first four years were the best years of his reign. That was when he asked for the gift of wisdom that God bestowed upon him in 1 Kings 3. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart shall rejoice also. I also rejoice in your wisdom, God said of Solomon. His wisdom was not merely intellectual. He intuitively understood things and could smell the charlatan, as in the famous case of the two women claiming to be the mother of the same child. Tradition teaches that the wise men of Athens, the Greeks, were indirect disciples of Solomon. He taught them mathematics, engineering, philosophy, and other abstract theor theoretical, esoterical subjects that the Greeks later became famous for. Isn't that interesting? He was their, uh, one of their original sources for this great wisdom. Solomon had a profound influence upon everyone that came to meet him. Monarchs arrived from all over the world to see his advice and test his wisdom. The Queen of Sheba was one of them. She traveled from far away and, and asked him to solve riddles, which he promptly did. And even as a teen, Solomon was recognized as the world's preeminent man of ideas and thoughts. The problem with such greatness is that it causes one to believe in oneself. Yep. 
downfall and the daughter of Pharaoh. So this is, he, he starts here as his downfall, just as the same conclusion we basically came from. Where was the beginning of, where was the crack in the door? Where, where did Satan get the foot in the door? It was one, one act of disobedience which led to a multitude because once he made the one crack in the door open but then didn't shut it again through repentance, by renouncing it, by turning away from it, by undoing whatever he had to do in order to make it right, he did not do that. and Therefore, the, the crack became bigger and bigger and bigger, as we know. The beginning of his de demise came after four years as king when he married the daughter of Pharaoh. It was a politically expedient move, as many of the marriages in the ancient world were. But, but, this is a big but, but. It was spiritually a disaster, despite the fact that she converted and was herself a great person. Now, he quotes another uh, biblical, another writing, rather, called Shabos 56b. And I don't know what Shabos is. It must be from the Talmud or one of those books, is, is my guess. Tradition many times describes how things were before the daughter of Pharaoh and after the daughter of Pharaoh. Before the marriage, his wisdom was all good. Afterward, it undid him. Uh, do not be too wise, he wrote, in reference to himself in Ecclesiastes 7. One of the effects of having too much knowledge was that he saw himself above the law. Now, we talked about this, didn't we? Just not too long back. The Torah says that a king should not accumulate too much money for himself. Solomon accumulated it anyway. The Bible said that a king should not have too many wives. Solomon took a thousand wives. Well, he had concubines and wives, and they count them all in one. The Bible also said that the king should not have too many horses, which is another way of saying do not have too big of an army, right? M military ex expenditures tend to take on a life of their own and become self-perpetuating. The same verse, my, my husband says it's a self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> okay. The same verse concludes, and do not lead people back to Egypt. And we've talked about that one over and over. Even after its decline, Egypt retained its natural wealth and thus served as the symbol of overindulgence in materialism. God wanted to keep the Jewish people far from the allures of Egypt. Among its allures, Egypt was the horse breeding capital of the ancient world. Any investment in a, mil in a military would lead to a nation back to Egypt in the sense of trade and compromises, if not physically as well. And we know that. Jeroboam was one example. He physically even went back because once the door was open, once the alliance was made, it gave him that free access to go. And so when he had to run from Solomon, that's where he went, was right back to Egypt. Uh, but here's what Solomon apparently thought. No, not me, Solomon said. I can deal with Egypt, right? What does that tell you about his pride, arrogance, right? He could not deal with Egypt. He ended up having to marry the daughter of the king of Egypt and accepting all the compromises and alliances that went along with it. Because Solomon acted as if he was greater than the law, the law eventually caught up to him. Now here he said, he now enters into a portion of this where he talks about these writings, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read pieces of it. After all, it's weighed in the balance. Although Solomon had faults, he is counted among the greats of the Jewish people. That's true, right? Um, at least uh, part of that can be attributed to the three remarkable books that he left to prosperity. Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. The temple he built was destroyed. Think of this. The temple he built was destroyed. The empire he built was destroyed. His palace 
was destroyed. The wealth he accumulated, it was all plundered and gone. But his books live on forever. Isn't that an amazing thought? The wisdom that God gave him and he wrote these books through, that remains forever. There's a proverb in that one. I think we could write our own, right? Song, Song of Solomon's is one of the most magnificent pieces of human poetry ever put to paper. Although on the surface, it is a love between a man and a woman. In the deeper sense, it's an allegory of the love between God and the Jewish people. And he goes on to talk about how there's really no other way to really convey God's love except to show it on a human level through, through that kind of analogy. The second book he wrote was Proverbs. It is a combination of philosophy, wisdom, social science, and good common sense. I love that. That's probably why I like Proverbs so much. Solomon's third book was Ecclesiastes. It is his most problematic. Now, this is the one he wrote at the end where he keeps saying everything is vanity, 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 right? So it's, it's as if, and on the one hand, it sounds like he's learned his lesson, but yet you don't ever really see a heart that's repentant or turning back. It's the most pro problematic. It is so difficult that the Talmud report, reports how there were sages who wanted to exclude it from the Bible canon altogether. They really didn't even want to include it because it was so problematic. Now, here's, here's the deal, and it's kind of like what we said about, or at least I did anyway, about uh, Hebrews when we were finished with it in order to get a good grip on the book of Hebrews you really have to do the entire book first then start evaluating it if you've done the whole book you get the picture of what's going on in this book that it's a that it's a sermon and that he's reaching out to a congregation and that he that it's evangelical in its nature and therefore the way that he states things can have to be parsed out through an understanding that he's reaching both some who are saved and some who are not, and he's just literally making fact statements, right? Well, Ecclesiastes apparently is similar to that in that you have to do the whole book first, then go back and start trying to draw your evaluations, or you're going to miss the whole problem, the whole point. He says, um, on the surface, the book has many contradictions. If one takes verses out of context, it sounds like he is saying things that are heretical. Heretical, thank you. I did, I knew that was going to happen because I read it exactly. Okay, the book has to be taken as a whole or it is uh, easily misunderstood. He goes on and expounds more on that. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon plays the devil's advocate, so to speak. For every philosophical theory, he describes the philosophical theory and sometimes may even seem to indulge in it. Nevertheless, he points out its weakness, its fatal flaw, and in the conclusion that it is vain and empty. I think that's a good point to remember. You might want to make yourself a note in your book of Ecclesiastes what the, the end of this whole thing is that what he is doing is he's looking at these other ways of viewing the, the world that you're in and the life that God has given you. And he's saying they're all vanity if you don't start from the place of true knowledge of God. Right? The last line reads, the end of the matter after all that has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's how he ends Ecclesiastes chapter 12. After we have considered everything, Solomon concludes that we are left with faith. There is no philosophy that answers everything. A person has to have faith. We are not privy to all of God's ways or answers. 
All right, then he says after the aftermath. At the end of Solomon's life, the Jewish empire began to split. He lost control of his wives who took over. I, now, this I did not know, and he's pulling this from um, extra biblical things, I think. According to Jewish tradition, he was driven from the throne and replaced by a pretender for years while he wandered in exile. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Scripture does not re record that, but that's what this person says. And then he says his end was not heroic. In that regard, his, his story served as a forerunner of the impending doom awaiting the Jewish commonwealth. And I think this is true. He's, in a, in a way, he's an allegory for what's going to happen to the nation on the whole. The Jewish people never again attained the stature, either spiritually or materialistically, that they attained at the beginning of Solomon's reign. Instead of becoming strong and united, the Jewish ki kingdom became weak and divided until its ultimate destruction. That was Solomon's story. Wow, huh? Whew. Good, good little article, though, wasn't it? It kind of pulled everything together.